And as you've heard, I invite you to open your Bible to Numbers chapter 13. We're glad that you could be with us today here at Lakeside. As a church family, we're going through a series together entitled God's Love to a Thousand Generations, a survey of the Old Testament. Survey means an overview. We've described it often as the view from 30,000 feet. That which you see and learn when you step back or get high enough that you get a bit of perspective on the overall story as it unfolds in Scripture. And if you could imagine yourself being assigned this afternoon to write a biography of your life, most of us, whether we are 13 years old here today or 85 years old, in being asked to look at our lives and describe what they've consisted of, would come to a series of moments. Now, we believe every moment is connected to every other moment, that if some accident would have happened yesterday, we might not be here today, and and our life is just an unfolding of various moments, but if we were asked, we would all be able to come to a few moments where something happened or didn't happen that changed everything. And that doesn't disappear the older you get. If you can only think of five now, you might only be able to think of seven or eight later when you really are able to reflect upon your life and say, yeah, but what decisions seem more than others to have affected the way my story has unfolded? As we're taking this look into the Old Testament, that's what we're looking for, these moments throughout the Old Testament where something happened that changed everything from there on out. That something is missing in the story if you lose this bit of information of how it unfolds. And we started in the book of Genesis, when God came to one individual named Abram and said, I am covenanting myself to you. I'm making a promise to you that through you and your kindred, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I am making this promise to you. And in that promise, what I'm asking you to do at the young age of 75 is to move from your homeland and go to a land that I will show you. And we learned as we looked in that story of Abram what faith is all about. God made clear what Abram was to leave, but Abram didn't know exactly where he was supposed to go. God revealed enough of himself to ask for Abram's obedience, but did not lay out the entire plan, but asked Abram to walk in faith. And many times we desire to walk in obedience to God, but we desire to do so in sight. We want the plan up front from the beginning, how it's going to work out, when it will work out, and then we'll decide whether or not we will obey. But for the father of our faith, we learn something very different. This willingness to follow God's command, even when we're unsure of where it will lead. To leave what is familiar to embrace what is unfamiliar. To leave what is comfortable and pursue what is uncomfortable in obedience to God. And this promise came to him and to all of his posterity that through them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
So while God chose one person, he did not choose that one person then in isolation of everybody else, but chose that person so that through him and his posterity, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That God's purposes from the beginning were global. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. And when God called him into a a new land, it wasn't an island where he could be disconnected from everybody else, but it was on a central trade route between two large empires where Abram and his family and his descendants could be connected to the world, not isolated from the world. And Abram had a son, and his son had sons. The family grew, and over a period of time, the promise started to be realized. It started to become more tangible to them. And yet there was a famine in the land. And so they left their land and went to Egypt. Now, those of you who know the story know I'm leaving out a lot of details. (laughs) But eventually the family moves over to Egypt because of a famine in their own land looking to survive, to keep the promise alive. And then in Egypt, over a period of 400 years, they grow By massive proportions as a family, they continue to grow and grow. But while they grow as a people, they also grow in their experience of suffering and pain. That their neighbors in Egypt did not look upon them as as welcomed guests, but as they began to grow in number, they were viewed as competition. And so the Pharaoh in his day said, if we just keep letting them grow and grow, They might one day not want to work for us anymore. They one day might try to take the authority that we now enjoy. And so this nation of people became enslaved and suffered for many generations under the pharaohs of Egypt. And it was hard in those times to see how the promise was being fulfilled. This family that was supposed to be the means through which all of the nations of the world would be blessed, that would be located in an area where they could be connected to the entire world at that time, is now slaves in Egypt, not free to associate where they want, not free to build relationships as they would desire, and not free to worship as they would understand God and how he revealed himself to them. And so it would have been hard for any of those Israelites to say, we can see the promise of God working in our day. And there was a a long period where, again, they had to walk by faith and not by sight. But as we read last week in Exodus, God remembered his covenant with them. And a series of events began to unfold through a servant called Moses, whom God raised up and called to go to the Pharaoh and declare freedom for the people of God. And so Moses came and he approached Pharaoh and he declared and asked first and pleaded for freedom for God's people to go and worship. And Pharaoh rejected that. He said, no, who's God that I should let these people go and worship him? And over a a period of time, these Israelites experienced their freedom and began a journey again to the land of promise. And as they left, they were then pursued. The people who had had them captive and now all of a sudden saw all their labor disappear and how that would affect their economy and the governing of their society, 
had a change of heart and said, we're not that interested in you leaving. (laughs) We'd rather keep you for longer. We'd rather renegotiate the contract, if you will. And so they went and pursued them, but with, uh, it was a futile attempt. And God, through the, the amazing story of the Red Sea, took care of once and for all the enemies of the people of Israel in Egypt. And now these people were truly free. There was nobody behind them pursuing them, trying to take them captive again. And so their journey continued all the way toward the promised land that God had asked of them. Nothing to fear going back. And as they came up now closer and closer to the land, a large group of people traveling through the wilderness, it came to a point where they stopped and they were close enough to kind of scope out the land before them. And so they selected and said, before we just all go, why don't we get 12, one from each of our tribes to go and to scope out the land, to survey it, to tell us what it's like. We've heard a promise that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's send someone to see if this promise is true before we go any further. And in the beginning of Numbers 13, we see the selection of these 12, what they're asked to do, and what they discover as they go throughout the land. And we pick up the story in verse 25, where these 12 men now come back to the people and report to them about the promise that they have been given. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However, The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height and there we saw the Nephilim the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, 
Or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it but my servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. 
Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And so the people turned. And for each day that the spies had been surveying the land, 40 days, they spent one year, 40 years, wandering in the wilderness not entering into the promise land that they had the opportunity in this moment to go and to enjoy. So here they are, no enemies behind them, nothing to fear by way of their their captors pursuing them. But as they hear the report, There's a very, very different response. As these spies come back, the first thing that they are told is that the promise is true. The first word that they get is that the land is great. The promise is true. Just a few verses before where we picked up the story, it described the fruit of the land to be so big that it took Two men carrying it on poles in order to lift it. That's how good the fruit of the land was. And so the first statement that they heard is that the promise is true. But then they discovered that the path was going to be hard. The promise was true, but the path was going to be hard. This land wasn't vacant territory. They weren't going to be received with open arms. There was going to be a painful path to receive the promise. And so they made a decision that many of us ought to be able to empathize with. In discovering that the path was going to be difficult, they began to fear. But life is like that, isn't it? No great reward comes without some willingness to receive and experience discomfort, displeasure, and pain in the immediate. And here here was the, the plan for them. There is a later and greater reward if you're willing to experience now an immediate displeasure, discomfort, or pain. And they chose no. They chose not to pursue the later and the greater reward because they didn't want to experience the immediate discomfort, displeasure, or pain. Now we today make decisions so much like this that so much of our economy is built on giving us the opposite promise. So much of our society based on on consumerism encourages us to an immediate reward with delayed pain, right? Take this now, enjoy it now, and pay for it over a long period of time, and the discomfort of the exchange is delayed so that we can experience the immediacy of the pleasure. And it works so well that it's used so often. But it's easiest to choose whatever will most immediately bring us a sense of satisfaction, a sense of pleasure, and a sense of joy. But what do we give up when we always choose 
what will bring us the fastest pleasure, the most immediate joy, instead of choosing in the moment to maybe be discomforted, to delay our pleasure, to pursue a greater reward. But here these people struggle. They hear that the promise is true, but the path is hard. And Caleb comes before them and says, let us go up at once in verse 30 and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. That all this news that we've just received about how many people live there, about how fortified their cities are, about how large they happen to be, all of that news should not prevent us from moving forward. And Caleb stands up and as one of the spies himself, as one of the ones who has seen all of this firsthand, he is in no way intimidated to move forward. But then the other spies speak up. They say, we're not able to go against it for they are stronger than we. And then verse 32 says they begin to start exaggerating their report. The news was bad enough, but since they're unwilling to go, they begin to start exaggerating their report. And so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. And they spied out saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And so here they are. They're faced in this moment as a nation with a decision. The promise has been proven true. The path is before them. It's a difficult path. Which will they choose? They have Caleb who is presenting to them his confidence and his faith that in spite of all that he's seen, God can still bring them in. God can still accomplish all that he has promised to them. But then they get the report of these other people who say, no, we can't do it. They're too big. There's too many of them. And in this moment in their history, we learn a very important lesson about timing. The importance of timing when it comes to our Christian lives. That if Satan can't get us to disobey God, that if we, if we see something before us and we're persuaded that it's right and that it's true, it's something that we should pursue. And that battle is lost. The next battle becomes the timing at which we're willing to follow through. So that if we do not, if he can't persuade us to disobey, he persuades us to delay our obedience. And delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And how many of these people in hearing this report could have thought, maybe if we just wait it out. Maybe something else will happen that will take care of these people so that we don't have to make the decision in faith to go. But let's wait till it's easy. Let's wait until it becomes much more obvious that this is what we're supposed to do instead of being willing to go in spite of what we see. And then chapter 14 opens, it says that all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And then they began to grumble. Their depression was so strong that they then say, would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in this wilderness. Collectively, they begin to express suicidal thoughts 
I would have rather have died in Egypt than been on this journey now for all this time seeing what has happened and now seeing what's before us. We've gone through so much. Why do we have to go through more? Aren't we yet at the point where we can just put it in cruise control? Just take it easy for a while. Why does the path continue to be hard? And as a, as a people, they begin to cry out. And then they ask God even, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now on the one hand, we ought to be able to empathize with them. They're not drastically different than we are. Some of the concerns that they raise are very valid concerns. What will happen to our wives and to our little ones? Why would we come in and walk into an automatic defeat? What in that is an expression of faith? What in that has any connection to the promises that God has made? But what they also lack is is a clear memory of what they've come from. For them to look back to Egypt, and believe that it was better there, and that it was better for their wives and children there, is just a bad memory. But they're they're so overwhelmed by their present circumstances that they're idealizing their past. They're looking back and saying, maybe it wasn't as bad as we thought it was. To have someone else tell us every morning, when we wake up, when we go to bed, how long we work. Maybe it wasn't that bad when in the beginning of Exodus, they're crying out for freedom. Now they're crying out in the same way to go back to the very pain that they had experienced. But since time has lapsed and they've moved on and, and there's not someone right now in their face, they can look back and idealize their past and forget how awful it was. And so they wish to go back. They even say, let's select another leader who will take us to go back. And so then Moses and Aaron, along with Joshua and Caleb, then start to cry as well. Just everybody's crying. (laughs) But they're crying for a very different reason. They're crying because they see people who are so close to receiving what God has desired and intended for them, but they're unwilling to receive it. And it breaks their heart. They're not crying because they're still thousands and thousands of miles away. They're right up to the door. They're almost there. They're so close And the very closeness that they're experiencing breaks their heart to say, how are we going to come this close and turn back? Maybe if we would have turned back at the beginning, maybe if we would have turned back halfway, but we're all the way here. Why now would we turn back? And so Joshua and Caleb, it says, they tear their clothes. It's a public demonstration of repentance. And they make this plea. They remind them that the promise is true. The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. 
If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Do not fear the people of this land. And then again, do not fear them. He's reminding them God is on our side. The same God who brought us all the way here will bring us all the way through. Don't look at the people and become afraid. Look at God and be confident that he can fulfill his promises. But these people, unable to turn their attention toward God, keep their gaze upon him and remember his faithfulness, become consumed with fear because they're looking out at their circumstances. They're looking out at what's before them. And surely, if they look long enough, they do have much to fear. And then all the congregation is so upset at Joshua and Caleb that they begin to pick up stones to stone them. That was a part of the story I just didn't remember from Sunday school growing up. That as two men stood up against the prevailing tides of everybody else, against the majority opinion of people who were afraid and unwilling to move forward, as they spoke up and expressed their confidence in God, their willingness to go forward, their willingness to move on, rather than listening to it and allowing their hearts to be softened, to hear what they had to say, the people became increasingly angry at them. And there is nothing, is there not, more angry when we're walking away from the Lord, when we're unwilling to do the things that he has called us to do, when we see someone else who is willing to persevere, who's willing to move forward, because it removes our excuses. When we see that someone else is still willing to go, because it wasn't that Caleb and Joshua saw something that the other 10 didn't see. They spied out the same land. They saw the same challenges. And their willingness to move forward puts the burden of proof on the 10 to say, so why aren't you? But not everybody's scared. Not everybody's unwilling. And it's not that some of you have information that others of you don't. But you're taking your information that you have and you're responding to it in two very different ways. Some of you are allowing yourselves to be consumed by fear. You're looking inward. You're looking around at your people and you're saying, we're a nomadic group of people. We don't even have a system of government. We don't have a trained military. What in the world are we going to do going into this land? And Joshua and Caleb are choosing not to look at the people, at their skills, at their abilities, but they're turning their eyes towards heaven and saying, all we need is for God to be on our side. And if we have that, then we're a majority. If we have that, we can persevere. And then the Lord says to Moses in verse 11, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them. And so here again, we learn a truth, and it's a sad truth, 
that again, our faith in God is not dependent upon how many signs we see God perform. You know, we pray often for signs. We pray for things to happen, miraculous things to happen that we can't make happen ourselves so that if and when they happen, we could say only God could do something like this. Only God could make this happen. And if he were willing to do that, we would believe. If he could do this, we would believe. God, if you get me out of this situation, then I'll follow you. But they have seen sign after sign after sign. These people could not have had more evidence of God's power, of God's faithfulness, and yet they're still choosing to walk away from him. And then God gives this offer to Moses. I can make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. I can make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses says to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. God, this promise that you made to this people, you didn't simply make it known to this people, but everybody knows this promise. And it's not just them who are on the line, but you're on the line. Your reputation your ability to see things through. And he brings back to God the very words of God and says, please, in verse 17, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Here again, the language of promise, which we have said is the language through which we can come to understand and know the unfolding story of Scripture. The Bible is about promises made and promises kept. God came to his people and made a promise to them. He localized, he made it specific in Abraham and through his people. He remembered it in Exodus and here now in Numbers all of his people are saying, in spite of his faithfulness, they're going to choose to rebel. They're going to choose to wander. They're going to choose to walk away. And so God now has a decision to make. Does he punish all of the people and move on with just Moses and his family, just the few who obeyed? Or does he keep the promise that he made? to be slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And Moses stands before him and says, please pardon their iniquity and forgive them just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. Not because they deserve it, not even because they've asked for it, but according to to your greatness. Forgive them, not because they deserve it, not even because they've asked for it, but according to your greatness. And the very next words that come out are, I have pardoned. That God has 
forgiven them, pardoned them for their iniquity, for their grumbling, for their wandering. And yet they will still experience the consequences of their sin even though they are pardoned from them. And God assigns them not to complete destruction but to a period of wandering for 40 years that they would not enter into the rest that he had given to them but that their rebellion would not affect their kids, the concern that they had raised about our wives and our children, but that God would send them off now into the wilderness and bring back their own children into the land that he had promised them. And we stopped our story in the reading right at that moment when they began then tomorrow to set out for the wilderness. I encourage you to to keep on reading the story because these people who were afraid to enter in when God was on their side, unwilling to step in faith and continue this journey of walking by faith in the promises of God because they looked at their circumstances and became overwhelmed with fear, now hearing that they're unable to enter the rest that God is going to punish them for their sin. He will pardon them, yet punish them. They then begin to get motivated by guilt. Their behavior by fear becomes behavior motivated by guilt, and they say, never mind, let's go. We change our mind. We're willing to go right now. And the leaders come before them, and they say, guys, no. There's an issue of timing. You were ready or you weren't ready. You were willing or you weren't willing. But you said no, and I'm going to honor that decision, and we're going in a different direction. And some of them, so overwhelmed with guilt, hearing even that the Lord was not with them, that if they went into the battle, they would not be protected. And a number of them went ahead anyway, and realized the very fate that they were afraid of in the beginning. They were destroyed by the people in the land. So here they were, given a promise, if you go, you will not be destroyed. God will give you what he has promised to you. And they said, no, we're too afraid. If we go, they'll destroy us. He says, no, they won't, they won't. All you need to do is believe in me. Trust in me that I am on your side. And they say, no, we will not go. And God says to them, okay, we're not going. We'll wait. We can wait. And then they go and they get destroyed. As we look back on it, we say, there's something about it that doesn't make sense. Why would they do this? But that is the consequence of sin. It so affects our thinking that we do things that do not make sense. And oftentimes we bring upon ourselves the very things that we are afraid of because we're unwilling to walk by faith when God calls us to do so. This story is then picked up at least two other places in our Bibles. And I'll invite you to turn to Psalm 95. As others then later reflect upon this pivotal moment in Israel's history. 
and say, what are we to take away? What are we to learn from this period when the people stood before the promises and were unwilling to move forward? And in Psalm 95, beginning in verse six, it reads, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed the generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In verse seven, today, if you hear my voice, do not Harden your hearts. Do not presume upon another day when you might be able to walk in obedience. Do not delay your obedience, but today choose to walk in my ways. And then the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, I'll invite you to turn there to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament as we close, where again in reflecting upon this story in Numbers, and then this psalm, in Psalm 95, the writer of Hebrews, again, is trying to plead with the people of God to make the same decision. In Hebrews chapter three, and starting in verse seven, the writer says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now quoting, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Their fear over what they had experienced and seen and heard in the report led to their unwillingness to obey and their unbelief in God's ability to keep his 
promises. And we're often challenged with similar choices when we look around at our situation and our circumstances and find it difficult to see how it's going to work out, we have to make a choice whether we will continue to walk in faith or whether we will be overcome by fear in the things that we see and say, never mind, I'm checking out. But here's the thing. Whatever you choose today, you're walking in faith. Some of you are convicted about something in your life that needs to change, but you're saying not now, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day. If that's the choice you make, you're walking in faith that there is a tomorrow. You're walking in faith that there is another week. But that's a step in faith because none of us can guarantee it for anybody else, not even ourselves. So none of us have the option of walking out of here fully aware of everything that's involved and everything that's going to happen going forward. We will take a step in faith. Either in faith that he will not keep his promises and we do not need to obey him. Or in faith that even though we fail to see exactly how it's going to work out, we know enough of him to trust him to obey him. Let's again kneel as we conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would allow the moments of our lives when we are convicted by your spirit And when we see your promises before us, to step out and to walk in faith. And we also intercede as Moses interceded and asked that for for everyone that we know and even ourselves when we struggle, when we grumble, when we complain, when we doubt, when we're unwilling to claim your promises that not because of ourselves and what we've done, but because of your greatness, you would pardon our sins. Father, I believe that there is at least one person who feels close. But is still struggling. And that today feels like a day of decision. And we pray that their eyes would look up to you. And that they would surrender and trust to your plan and your purposes. To be done with excuses, to be done with letting their fear control their decisions. We pray it in your name. Amen.